Welcome back to Informed and Inflamed, where we seek to inform our minds with truth in order to inflame our hearts with love for God and neighbor. I'm Brad Owens, and I'm excited that you're joining me today for another episode. In this episode, we will tackle the letter E in our Cracker Jack acronym, which stands for exile. This acronym helps us unpack the big story of the Bible, and it gives us some handles to hold on to as we discover more about this grand and glorious story. We took a look at the kingdom period in our last episode together, and there's a lot that happens in the transition from the kingdom period to the period of the exiles. Saul, David, and Solomon were the first kings of Israel, and they ruled over a united monarchy that included all 12 tribes of Israel. Solomon's son Rehoboam, however, split the kingdom in half because of his foolishness and self-centeredness. Under Rehoboam, the kingdom splits into the northern kingdom of Israel, which included 10 tribes, and the southern kingdom of Judah, which included two tribes. The capital of the northern kingdom was Samaria, and the capital city of the southern kingdom was Jerusalem. And this is also the period of Old Testament history in which we see a lot of prophets arise on the scene. There were prophets who proclaimed God's word of warning to God's people before the exiles, some who prophesied during exile, and some who prophesied after the return from exile. And some of the prophets' messages were aimed at the northern kingdom, while others were aimed primarily at the southern kingdom. So whenever you begin reading through one of the major or minor prophets in your Bible, it's helpful to get a handle on these sorts of questions before you read it. Understanding these things will help you get the most out of each prophetic book in the Old Testament. But God used the prophets to call His people to repentance and to renew their commitment to God. But sadly, they did not heed God's voice and paid the price for their disobedience. The northern kingdom of Israel was taken into exile to Assyria in the year 722 B.C., And the same thing happened to the southern kingdom of Judah over a century later, except with them it was the Babylonians who dragged them into exile in the year 586 B.C. Actually, there were three waves to the Babylonian exile. Captives were taken from Judah into the Babylonian Empire in 605 B.C. and 597 B.C. as well. But 586 B.C. was the last wave and also when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. This was a sad, dark season in Israel's history as a nation, and God used the exiles to discipline His people for their persistent unfaithfulness and disregard for His ways. As a brief introduction to this period of Old Testament history, let's think a little bit about the book of Jonah. Jonah is unique among the prophetic books because Jonah is a story. In most prophetic books, the bulk of their content is the actual message they shared with their audience. Jonah, however, is in the form of a story about a particular season in this prophet's life. As for the actual content of his prophetic ministry, we are given very little information. So that's one thing that sets Jonah apart from the other prophetic books in the Old Testament. The events in Jonah also happened before the exiles took place. In 2 Kings 14, we learn that Jonah served as a prophet during the reign of King Jeroboam II who reigned from approximately 793 to 753 B.C. 
And remember, that's about a generation or so before the northern kingdom goes into exile in 722 BC. And they are taken to Assyria. And Nineveh, the city to which God calls Jonah to preach, is the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. So I think the story of Jonah foreshadowed what God was about to do in just a few short years. And this story would have given the Israelites great hope as they stepped into exile and endured God's discipline for their sin. This story served as both a warning and as a word of hope for when they found themselves in exile, away from the land that God had given them. And we learned so many neat things from the story of Jonah, but here are just five. The first thing is that sin is costly. The book of Jonah opens this way. This is Jonah 1, verses 1 through 3. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. As soon as Jonah begins running away from God, he began paying for it. He paid the fare to get onto a boat to disobey God's word. This is meant to communicate so much more than the simple fact that Jonah's flight from God impacted his wallet, although that's no small thing. His disobedience not only impacted his wallet, but it was also costly in countless other ways, as the rest of the story shows. This was one miserable episode in Jonah's life, and it all came about as a result of his decision to disobey God. Sin is costly, and this episode in Jonah's life was meant to serve as a warning to Israel about the costly nature of disobeying God. Israel should have learned from Jonah's experience that sin has consequences, and sin left unchecked had enormously tragic results. On a more encouraging note, the story of Jonah also shows us that God continues pursuing. Even after Jonah tries to run away from God, God comes after him in love. And certainly it wasn't a pleasant experience for Jonah, the storm being thrown into the sea and swallowed by a huge fish, reflecting on his decision inside a stinky fish stomach. All of it made for a pretty miserable experience. And yet these things were also expressions of God's fatherly discipline of his dearly loved child. God's purpose stood behind Jonah's pain. And the trouble he experienced was used by God to grow and mature Jonah. Jonah's heart, much like our own, was still in need of drastic change. Even though he had been walking in fellowship with God for a while, there was still so much work that God needed to do in his heart. And we too are like Jonah. We choose to run in the opposite direction of God's command, just like Jonah did. We decide we're just going to do what we want to do, and we don't care much for the consequences until we're overwhelmed by them. And what happens to Jonah, though, should encourage us. Even in Jonah's disobedience, God continued chasing after him. He continued the good work that he had begun in Jonah's life, and nothing would stop him from having his way in the heart of this beloved child of his. No matter how hard Jonah tried to run, God would be there. He would discipline, comfort, convict, and help him. Whatever it took, God would be there to change Jonah's heart. And the same relentless love of God also pursues those of us who have trusted in Christ 
and now belong to him because of God's grace. The third thing that we learn from the story of Jonah is that God works even through our mess. Something else the story of Jonah teaches us is that God does this, that he works through the messiness of our lives. God can use even the mess we make of our lives to further his purposes and to advance his kingdom. And we see this at the end of Jonah 1. After Jonah boards the ship, after the terrible storm arises, and after being interrogated by the sailors and reluctantly thrown overboard, we see that God was working through this messy situation to save a handful of pagan sailors. Jonah 1 verse 16 says, At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to Him. This truly is God's grace put on display. Jonah, even when he's not even trying to share the gospel or do anything good, is still used by God to accomplish his saving purposes. This entire situation came about because of Jonah's unfaithfulness, and yet in it, God displays his unfailing faithfulness. This, too, should give us hope. Just as God used Jonah's mess to work redemptively, so he can use ours. He can work even through our mistakes and bad decisions to do what he wants to do. Nothing can thwart his plans or frustrate his purposes. His will will be done in the end. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. What a comfort to know that God works to save sinners. And even our messes and failures cannot stop his good plan from being done. Number four is Jonah shows Israel what God is about to do. Now, this point is pretty incredible, but the story of Jonah also shows Israel what God is about to do. Remember, this story happened before the exile took place, and it would have struck the Israelites as a word of warning and as a word of hope. What God does here with Jonah and the great fish is also what he's about to do with Israel and the great city of Nineveh. Jonah and the fish are the micro-level display of the macro-level reality that God is about to accomplish. You see, Jonah in his disobedience, he represents disobedient Israel as a whole. And there's a connection between the fish and the city of Nineveh. The text calls the fish a great fish, and it also calls Nineveh that great city. So it seems to be making a subtle connection between them. Just as God sent Jonah into the belly of the fish to discipline him and to work repentance into his heart, so God is about to send Israel, the nation, into the belly of the fish, the Assyrian Empire, where they will be disciplined for their sin. And just as Jonah survived being in the belly of the fish and was spit out on dry land, so Israel will survive the exile and will eventually return to their land. The fish was the means of preservation God used to protect Jonah while he was disciplined. And the Assyrians, after experiencing widespread repentance in light of Jonah's preaching, would be used by God as the means of preservation for disobedient Israelites as they went into exile for their sin. And when Israel realized that the experience of Jonah was a small picture of what he was about to do and what was going to happen to them, it would serve as a warning. But it would also serve as a word of hope for the Israelites when they found themselves in exile. Now, obviously, Israel didn't learn the lesson they needed to learn beforehand. Otherwise, God would have spared them the exile. But once they found themselves in exile, this story would have offered them much hope 
Just as Jonah survived his ordeal, so Israel would survive this period of God's fatherly discipline, and they would eventually come back to their land. And lastly, the story of Jonah shows us the pattern of Jesus. As Jonah disobeys the Lord, he keeps descending further down into trouble. The text says he went down to Joppa to find a ship to board. Then he went down into the ship to take a nap. And when the fierce storm comes, the sailors end up throwing him down into the sea. So there's a lot of downward language in Jonah 1 and 2 as Jonah descends further and further into the consequences of his own disobedience. In Jonah 2 verse 6, from the belly of the fish, Jonah prays and says, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. So he went down, and now the Lord is bringing him up. He thought he was going to die, but then God prepared a fish to rescue him from death. And the movement of Jonah's life in this episode creates a U-shape. Just like the letter U dips down and then goes back up, so Jonah descends down into trouble and is brought back up by the Lord. What happens to Jonah is a picture of what will happen to Jesus. Jonah descends down into the trouble he himself had created, but Jesus descends from his throne to take upon himself the trouble we deserve for our sins. Jonah's trouble came from his own sin, but Jesus' trouble comes upon him because he is taking up the sins of others in order to deal with them once and for all. Jonah endured a horrible storm on account of his rebellion, and Jesus endured a terrible storm as he endured God's stormy wrath that was due us for our rebellion. Jonah's life was U-shaped because Jesus' life was going to be U-shaped. Jonah's experience was the shadow, but Jesus' experience was the full reality to come. Jonah, though, he served as a powerful picture of what God would one day do through Christ. Salvation came to the pagan sailors and to the Ninevites in spite of Jonah's disobedience. And salvation comes to the world precisely because of Jesus' perfect obedience. We see gospel glimpses all over the book of Jonah. And this book can serve us as it did the Israelites in the Old Testament. The book of Jonah communicates to us the great gravity of human sinfulness. Sin is costly, and it must be taken seriously. Trouble comes when we disobey God. But even more than that, the book of Jonah teaches us that even when our sins are many, His mercy is more. The glory of God's grace overcomes the seriousness of sin. In Christ, God's justice against our sin is satisfied so that His mercy can be extended to us. Only in Christ is this great divine dilemma dealt with. His righteousness is satisfied as God crushes Jesus as our substitute. And His love is displayed as sinners are saved, not because of anything they've done or not done, but entirely because of God's goodness and grace. So Jonah is a remarkable little book. It packs a punch, and it contains glimpses of Christ's glory left and right. May we learn to read this incredible little book with eyes that see how it displays the beauty of Jesus. Well, that's it for this episode of Informed and Inflamed. Thanks so much for joining me, and I look forward to connecting with you again next time.